we avoid the most important things as if to say these are taboo. And I think it's absurd that a Jew should feel it taboo not to want to discuss emunah. I think it's ridiculous to, that we somehow sidestep a serious question about how do we understand these events. We shouldn't claim to have the answers, but we should be prepared to have a conversation. If we're so afraid to have the conversation, it shows a lack of either understanding or confidence or perhaps even humility to be able to live with questions rather than with answers. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. One of the more troubling realities of the modern Orthodox world today is an apparent disconnect between the tenets of modern Orthodoxy and the beliefs of many of its adherents. It seems that there are many who identify with the community while lacking traditional belief. Others live within Orthodoxy but yearn for a life of greater spirituality. The first aspect of this issue was given prominence in an article and commentary in April 2014 by Jay Lefkowitz entitled The Rise of Social Orthodoxy. He writes... As a matter of doctrine, the fundamental tenet of Orthodox Judaism is the belief that on Mount Sinai, God transmitted to Moses both the written law, the Torah, and the oral law, the Talmud, and certain other rabbinic texts. That is why Orthodox Judaism is generally resistant to changing interpretations of the law, except where there is some precedent for it in traditional law. To be sure, many modern Orthodox rabbis and some of their congregants are steadfast in their faith and look to halacha to guide all aspects of their lives precisely because they believe it is the revealed word of God. But if unwavering acceptance of the Torah as divine is the precondition for orthodoxy, then the term modern orthodox may well be a misnomer for many Jews who identify as modern orthodox. They might more accurately be described as social orthodox, with the emphasis on social. So what is actually going on in the minds and hearts of many modern Orthodox Jews? And frankly, does modern Orthodoxy have a future? To find out more, I spoke with Rabbi Johnny Solomon, also known as the Virtual Rabbi. We'll get to that interview in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Johnny Solomon is a teacher, writer, editor, and virtual rabbi who provides online spiritual coaching, one-to-one learning, and halachic consultations to those without a rabbi. Rabbi Johnny Solomon, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we get into our primary topic, Ravjani, let me ask you about why you are called the virtual rabbi. I think that will actually lead into our topic. How did that start and what does it mean? I don't know how many people actually call me that. I, I use this term. Um, I use it because I hope it expresses what I'm trying to achieve, which is to be a rabbi for those without a rabbi and try and help people, not necessarily in my physical location. I live in a small religious yeshub called Evan Wild, but instead to provide uh, spiritual coaching, halachic consultations, one-to-one learning to men, women, and couples around the world. And so I use the internet uh, social media to share my ideas. People find me through those spaces. And that's why I use that term. All right. Now, a lot of people have consulted you about some of the topics we're going to talk about today. You've identified, and you shared with me some of these ideas, what you consider to be a type of spiritual malaise in the modern Orthodox community. So I'm going to ask a series of questions about that. Let me start off with first your definition of modern Orthodoxy. What community are you talking about? Okay, so first and foremost, you know, there are different expressions of modern orthodoxy, different people live in different communities using that term. Uh, and perhaps because I grew up in the UK, which isn't considered to be the bastion, the heartbeat of modern orthodoxy, that gives me an opportunity to be both an inside and outside. I certainly ideologically identify with modern orthodoxy. A lot of the things I write and share very much align to that position, but I'm not beholden to any particular institution, which is considered to be, for example, the flagship of modern orthodoxy, although it should be noted, as I mentioned in the talk to the UK just last week, that the term modern orthodoxy was first used about Michael Friedlander, the head of Jews College in 1892. So if you were, whoever used the term first, I suppose a Brit had I it. guess the UK deserves it. The UK may well, but that, the truth is it didn't self-express. And that's why, of course, we saw the flowering of, of a whole new vista of possibilities and expressions of that term and what that means, especially in the United States. But overall, what is modern orthodoxy? I think it's, uh, it's the belief that there's religious value and perhaps even religious imperative in drawing wisdom and contributing wisdom to the modern world such that we Jews should live a life that blends or as some prefer that synthesizes Torah meaning our particular inheritance with Chokhmah, the universal wisdom found uh, across the world to help us live a religiously complete life. So we don't believe that we should relegate our religious life to the synagogue or limit ourselves to our study to just religious texts, but instead we see in the blend, in the marriage of the religious and the secular, something beautiful, something meaningful, and something which helps us become fuller beings and helps us contribute to the wider world. Okay, given that definition of modern orthodoxy, which I accept as well, the idea that we're drawing wisdom from the wider world in order to positively influence our own religious experiences, and I use that word experience perhaps incorrectly, our own religious lives, then I can think of two specific areas that this might be manifest in that could lead to problems. First of all would be perhaps the more obvious one, which is a lack of belief. Not that there aren't answers to confronting secular wisdoms, but too often I find in my own experience that people's experience or understanding of God remains at a kindergarten level, whereas their Mm. understanding of physics or literature or archaeology may be at a graduate school level. When those two things meet, when their understanding of theology is the same that they learned in second grade, while they have degrees in advanced disciplines that might seemingly contradict that belief or belief in Torah or whatever it is, 
that can cause problems. A second aspect, however, is the very intellectual nature of what you're describing. Wisdom from the outside world can emphasize a rationalist type of attitude, which is perfectly fine on its own, but sometimes it might denigrate, therefore, the experiential, the spiritual, the ruchaniyut that we need to enhance our religious lives. So those are two aspects of what we might call modern Orthodox malaise. Do you agree with that assumption? Well, I, I think what you've highlighted is, is areas where modern orthodoxy may uh, find themselves needing to play catch-up. I agree that those are two areas which arise. So let me tell you a little bit more about this virtual rabbi thing and in many ways why I'm talking about this, because I'm by no means an expert. I'm not a sociologist. But uh, uh, over the past many years, I've been talking to men, women, and couples, and more recently formalizing this role as the virtual rabbi. And people are telling me things that they're not sharing with their local orthodox rabbi. Many of them don't even have one, and that's itself of significance. And so I'm, I suppose I'm trying to paint a picture, trying to make sense of, and, and having a conversation out loud, perhaps our listeners may well be able to contribute as well, uh, to say, what's going on in homes? What's going on in communities? What are we not discussing? What deserves further support and, and uh, crystallization? And I think those two areas that you touched on, one being matters to do with emona, and one areas to do with intellectualism, rationalism, are certainly some of, by no means uh, what I see the total, but some of the issues that arise. And what's frustrating for me is, you know, my bookshelves align with many, many Sifrei uh, Kodesh and Hebrew and English, some of our great teachers of modern orthodoxy. And I believe that some of their wisdom is so wise, is so profound, really helps us understand what it means uh, to be a person of faith in the modern world. And yet, though we may well quote them in Shirim, we don't often live them. Though we may well cite them, we don't often ponder them. That means it, the frustration that I have, shall we say, with the ideological community to which I belong, is we have in many ways some of the uh, most useful of answers in terms of living this integrated, synthesized life. But nevertheless, we're not really conveying that. We're not really teaching that. We're not really preaching that. In fact, I would say that uh, many modern Orthodox communities and schools talk very little about Imunat, even though some of our greatest teachers spoke so much about it. And there was a disconnect between almost, shall we say, the Torah of modern Orthodoxy, which is wise, which is rich, which is resonant, and the lifestyle of modern orthodoxy, which at times seems to sidestep some of the most fundamental issues which we often find ourselves confronting as Jews living in the modern world. That's in terms of emunah. In terms of rationalism, uh, I'd say, I'd draw these words intellectualism because rationalism is, is itself something slightly different, although I'm happy to address that. Yes, there is oftentimes an overemphasis on the mind and not enough on the heart. Uh, and, and I hear that and I see that from the people I'm meeting, from my students, from my clients, who are basically yearning for something that lifts them, but feels that the lifestyle of modern orthodoxy, which they've bought into, is much, much more driven by the mind, not the heart, and it's leaving them somewhat hollow. When you just mentioned right now the fact that too often in schools, these great thinkers that you have on your bookshelves are not taught, why is that then? Wouldn't that be the first thing that they would teach? Well, firstly, it's important for me to note that while I'm very happy to talk about education, my background is a teacher. Many of my clients are really between about age 30 to 60. And often when we talk about trends in modern orthodoxy, we focus on youth. And I'm actually trying to say that's important. That's really important. Uh, but nevertheless, let's talk about adults because those adults are the ones who are the parents of those children. Mm -hmm. And homes are really important too. And while we could talk about what 
teachers are or aren't doing in the handful of hours they have per week in teaching Judaism and far, far fewer if they do have in teaching Jewish philosophy. The question is, what's happening in our communities? What's happening in our synagogues? What's happening in our homes? Are we taking uh, ideology seriously? Are we hearing those voices meaningfully? And are their messages really reaching the day-to-day -day life of our adults and our youth? Because what I see is, a lot of parents are finding, and it's not just parents, but let's say people aged 30 to 60, either parents or singles, and singles, by the way, have it much, much harder. But a lot of them find the grind of living in the modern world tough, because being modern Orthodox isn't easy. Well, Soloveitchik was very emphatic that, uh, you know, life is not a paradise, it's a paradox. We have to wrestle with these challenging things. They're often referring back to the story of Yaakov wrestling with the angel. Life at times is an ideological, spiritual wrestle, and people need chizik, and they need clarity, and they need wisdom. And what we seem to be not talking about, as say, in Shirim, in the homes, is matters of emunah, matters of hashkafa, matters of machshava. Um, we talk about them in terms of abstract issues, but rarely about practical issues. Uh, and consequently, as I say, the thing that we've been bequeathed by our great teachers, the Rav Soloveitch, the Rabbi Lambs, uh, Rabbi Sack, to, from, of whom I'm a student, is not quite making it into the... Uh, perspective and the life choices of of adults and kids and as a result of that we're kind of uh, always veering towards the easier topics okay? ironically halakha is much much easier than dealing with the questions of emunah and, and hashkafa which uh, in the modern orthodox community we've kind of said that's not what our rabbis talk about we've narrowed their role and we say we don't want das torah from you we fact, we're only interested in you sharing opinions about concrete halakha but in so doing i think we've left many many sheep without having a shepherd i'm going to suggest something to you johnny and i'm curious what you think about this i don't know if this is right or wrong I do wonder if part of the problem is a lack of training among the people who are considered rabbis, serious Talmudic Chachamim. I don't mean all of them, of course. But when we look to people who are trained in the area of halacha specifically, who are Talmudic scholars, who are people who can pass in a shayla, and we ask them to talk about hashkafa, it could very well be they simply are not trained in the areas of hashkafa that you and I are talking about right now. And as a result of that, it actually is doubly a problem. First of all, their answers are not good if they ever even get to it. And second of all, because their answers aren't good and because they are held as the people who know the answers, people assume that there aren't answers, whereas the truth is, at least in some of these cases, they simply don't know what they're talking about, but we look to them as, this is a topic I've talked about before in other contexts, we often, unfortunately, look to rabbis as the bearers of all Jewish knowledge, sometimes the bearers of all knowledge, period. And maybe that's occasionally true, but usually it's not. We have to know who is an expert in what before consulting them. 100%. It's exactly the topic which I addressed in some recent talks. Uh, uh, Ari Leibowitz, or Ari Leibowitz, the head of the Yeshiva University Smicha program, was recently interviewed by Dov Bashevkin and asked how come basically your program teaches very, very limited Jewish philosophy. And he said, Basically, my program is to teach people the skills to Paskin. My argument is, in order to Paskin, you also know, need to know Jewish thought. And uh, I, I entirely agree. In fact, Ravar and Lichtenstein was very, very clear. Just as you can make a ta'ut badavah halacha, you can make an error in halacha, you can make a ta'ut badavah emunah. And I would say, from the clients I've met, sometimes a ta'ut badavah halacha is easy to reconcile. Okay, so I turned on the light I didn't realize, or I ate something I shouldn't have eaten. But it's our misunderstanding of what's going on in the life that we're leading, which can lead people to much, much greater crises. And so, yes, poor education, poor training, poor emphasis on 
on matters of emuna machshava for people who are supposed to be leading individuals both in their high points but also in their moments of challenge mean that bad advice is perpetuated and 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 there's there's so many instances that I've had to deal with and I I don't claim to be an expert but I'm relatively well read both in halakha and in hashkafa and um and I sometimes say to somebody, why do you think this? And they say, well, it's what I've been led to be taught. And as you say, it's a, it's a very elementary approach to, to, for example, ill health. If somebody some, unfortunately got ill health in a the family, they may well think it to be that their fault. Whereas, in fact, they don't necessarily understand. They've never necessarily pondered the role of nature uh, in Jewish thought, or they've been given very, very simplistic answers, which mean to think that everything bad that happens to them is therefore because it's their fault. And then that leads them to guilt and questioning. So I, I think undoubtedly people who give any kind of religious guidance needs to reflect the breadth of religious guidance and uh, matters of the heart and the mind, matters of Jewish thought very much come alongside matters of Jewish practice and to distinguish between halakha and hashkafa as if they're so simply uh, separated, I think is to misunderstand what is our tradition. And it's not just, if I can interject, it's not just that the answers can be shallow. They're often presented, at least in my experience, as the answer with a capital A. This is the Jewish approach. I've heard that more times than I can count when Judaism is a very varied and not nearly a monolithic thing. There are many different approaches, particularly when you get into areas of hashkafa. Yes, a few things we can say. God is one that's pretty universally accepted. And let's even get beyond the Ikarei Munah. But why bad things happen to good people? I've heard people say there's one way of looking at that. There certainly are many more than one ways of looking at this. And I think that that dumbing down is t- it's a different type of dumbing down. It's a narrowing. And if the answers don't work for somebody and they think that's the only Jewish approach, well, then I'm out of here. Right. So so this is where things get a little bit complicated because I, I'm, I'm not somebody who believes in that kind of single approach. I think that's ridiculous. But nevertheless, I also believe in Jewish wisdom. And there's the effect of, I would say, I don't think the intentional effect, but the effect of things like uh, uh, Mark Shapiro's book about the Ikra Muna made some people think that there's not much belief in Jewish living. Again, that's not what he was saying, but that's, I think that's how right, some he, That's not what he was saying. It. Right. But I think that's how some people interpret it. It means that we don't really know about anything, so there's no point discussing it. And of course, uh, that's absurd as well. So there are people who go through difficulties or people who go through high points in their life and they want to make religious sense of things. People who are absolute uh, claim basically to have the wisdom of God, which is absurd. Ravar Lichtenstein often said, please, we need to have some humility. You know, during the disengagement, he was quite critical of those who knew for sure why these things were happening, why there was a tsunami who knew for sure why these things were happening. At the same time, he didn't say we shouldn't uh, think out loud. We have, you know, a, a whole series of, of teachings from the Tanakh, from the Gemara, from the Midrash, and from our great Jewish thinkers since then. And people want to try and make sense of what's going on around them. And they deserve conversations. And, and let me just briefly now break back to what I do as this virtual rabbi, because what I don't do, what I'm opposed to, is what uh, we often find in these Alonai Shabbat we have in Israel, where people try and give one-line answers to sometimes the most complicated problems. Actually, people book at least an hour uh, at a time conversation with me, and we try and have a rich conversation. And it's not about necessarily the the absolute singular answer that we reach, but instead it's about delving into and considering a range of options, some which may well speak to people. And in our day and age, and it's not just within the religious world, 
we seem so insistent that everything can be answered instantaneously that we don't spend enough time dwelling on the problem. You know, uh, Ravaran Lichtenstein, I've mentioned him before because he is one of the great Jewish thinkers uh, within modern orthodoxy. Uh, and he said, what I received from all my mentors was the key to confronting life, particularly in modern life, in all its complexity, is that the recognition that it's not necessary to have all the answers as to learn to live with the questions. So when sometimes people present a question to me, I say, I don't have all the answers. I don't even think I have one, but let's think about a range of, of possibilities and talk them through. And through that pondering, through that meditation on Jewish wisdom, people are often able to find comfort, especially when they feel at a crossroads in life. People who give religious guidance need to give real time to people who are seeking religious guidance. And that part and parcel is a problem because if you're, for example, a, a rabbi rabbits in a community, uh, and many communities don't have religious leaders, but even if you are, and you're privileged to be a full-time uh, member of the clergy, well, you're often expected to do so many urgent things. You know, there's a levaya here, and there's a wedding here, and you've got to do a big event because the board expects it. Are you ever going to find an hour or two hours to have a deep and meaningful conversation about something which is important but not urgent? And the sad fact is no. And so many people, that's why they're calling some British guy in the middle of the desert. I don't know. The sad fact is that they don't have, even their, if they do live in a community, they're not able to access time and they're not able to access a range of um, insights that may well speak to them, especially as they may be confronting difficulties in their life. Yeah, I mean, if I can just add to that, I have seen, and obviously this is certainly not true for everybody, it's only true for some, but I have seen some yeshiva rabbis looked at almost as oracles, as people who have all the answers, and as a staff member, I can hear behind their voice, they clearly don't know the answer. I've seen people go to them, students say, what do I do about the following serious hashkafic issue? And I've heard the answer or something, oh, I wouldn't worry about that, which to me is code word for they don't have the answer to it, and therefore... They're going to basically allow their authority as a greater Tommy Chacham than the student to stand in place of an actual answer. That might work for some people, but when the student learns more and later on perhaps the bubble is burst and he realizes, wait, maybe he just didn't know the answer, that answer is going to cause longer-term problems down the road. Now, on the other hand, I think authority sometimes can be used on some level, and this gets back to what you said about Ravaron Lichtenstein in an article that he wrote called The Source of Faith is Faith Itself, um, mm -hmm. which I know that you've cited as well. I, when I think that's where he talks about living with the questions, at least that's one place. I remember a, a beautiful story, which I'm sure you know, too, where he talks about when he was younger, having certain moral qualms about various mitzvot, like the Irni Dachat, the city that's destroyed, or uh, destroying the seven nations or Amalek. And how could the Torah command something which is seemingly immoral? Then he learned about Rav Chaim Brisker. And Rav Chaim Brisker used to wake up in the middle of the night to check his door to see if anybody left a baby there because they couldn't afford to feed it. In other words, Rav Chaim Brisker's source of chesed, his moral sense, was, as Rav Aaron Lithenstein tells it, far superior to his own. And he said, well, I don't wake up in the middle of the night to check if someone left a baby on my doorstep. Clearly, my problem isn't that I'm more moral than Rav Chaim Brisker, but that he's able to live with it. If he can live with it, then so can I. And there might be something to that as well. What do you think? I agree. Ultimately, this idea of humility is very important. There are things which we wrestle with, which we don't always have the answers. You know, I write a daily thought in Dafyomi. And at times I publicly wrestle with things which are hard for me to make sense of. We're in the middle of Masechet Yevamot, which for many people has been a very brutal Masechet to learn through. Oh, yes. And, 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 uh, and we learn through, the, you know, I open the daf. I think it should be day. us here to learn a daf yomi personally. But, so, but I, I focus on one thing. I learn a daf a couple of times and I try and focus on one thing to try and make sense of it. But nevertheless, I write as somebody who is trying to understand. And 
And it's okay to say, this is what I think, or this is the Meshachach, who seems to be able to find this way forward, or, or this is a question which remains unresolved. Uh, and, you know, many times uh, amongst the Rishonim Achronim that end with Tzarech Ian. It's okay to say Tzarech Ian. In fact, going back to the example of the Yeshiva Rabbi, I think part of the parcel of that was that teachers are afraid to be vulnerable. So if teachers are afraid to be vulnerable, then we convey the message that nobody should be vulnerable, which is why when people have really big questions which highlight their spiritual vulnerability, it's as if there's a meta message in our community, we don't ask those questions, or we do them behind closed doors. Because to talk about faith is to talk about matters of the heart. To talk about matters of the heart can be too emotional. So let's best only talk about things which are easy to discuss, things which are intellectual, things which are practical, things which are concrete. But what that does is, it means that in the Rishut Rabim of, of religious discourse, especially in the modern Orthodox community, we avoid the most important things, as if to say these are taboo. And I think it's absurd that a Jew should feel it taboo not to want to discuss emuna. I think it's ridiculous that we somehow sidestep a serious question about how do we understand these events. We shouldn't claim to have the answers, but we should be prepared to have a conversation. If we're so afraid to have the conversation, it shows a lack of either understanding or confidence or perhaps even humility to be able to live with questions rather than with answers. Before we went on the air, you pointed out an article to me by Jay Lefkowitz in commentary in 2014. Mm-hmm. I cited it yeah. in my introduction to this podcast where he talks about social orthodoxy, the idea that people believe in maybe nothing, but they continue to be a member of the community doing their religious practices, acting like Orthodox Jews. I don't mean only in public, even in private, being Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Torah Mitzvot, but not believing in it. I don't know how widespread this is, but he indicates that it's pretty widespread. It's not so uncommon. And I wonder if there's anything we can do to go against that. I don't mean to say it's not true, but if people don't have faith, I'm guessing most people who are in this realm of social orthodoxy, who are acting orthodox, even though they don't necessarily believe it, would prefer, maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume they would prefer to actually believe in the things they're doing in addition to doing it just for the social reasons. Is there a way to help people regain that faith after the fact, or is it too late once it's already gone? Is it, in other words, something which we can do to help people with questions, but once people are already outside of the fold of emuna, even if not in practice, there's nothing left to do? What do you think about that? I think people feel disconnected from faith for a whole bunch of reasons, and therefore the reason for them feeling disconnected will be a factor as to whether they can regain it. So uh, uh, some people can unfortunately have suffered abuse from a religious member of a community, and no matter what you say, you know, their innocence has been lost, uh, and, and, and they've been pained, and oftentimes they've been betrayed, and to claim that why can't you just simply regain your faith, because uh, our our religious life lives not just individually but within communities, and so we need both. You know, we uh, we root uh, commits herself both to God but also to the Jewish people, and sometimes one can let down the other. We can have faith in God, but say the way people live that faith is very very troubling. And so I'll privately live as I do, but I don't really want to engage with within the communal and institutional structures. But nevertheless, going back to that. You, you say you don't know how many people are like Jay. Well, firstly, Jay Lefkowitz, I have to take my hat off. He was very, very honest, and his, uh, his piece you know, prompted a whole bunch of discussions. Some people agree with him. Some people disagree with him. I disagree on certain things. But basically, he characterized himself and some of his peers as saying, I do what I do, but I don't really believe what you think I believe. And there are a lot of people like that, and especially uh, in families, the impact of that is huge. 
The sad fact is, and, and again, I'm privileged, if you could call it that, to have conversations with people who are in these situations or spouses of people uh, in this situation or couples where one is and one's not, is that this, this has a direct impact on, uh, on the religious and spirit, spiritual atmosphere of a home. And so if we're not able to discuss questions of faith, then we're actually doing is allowing difficult situations to become worse because families don't even know what do I do with this if my if my wife has no, stopped believing because of this kind of thing how how does it affect the the home in which we're raising by the way that's a question I was asked by somebody directly less than a week ago right there's a family in in Israel where it happens to be the husband and and they're just keeping up with what we call the Joneses or the Smiths who knows meaning this idea of you know apparently living a religious life but not really feeling it really really shapes the children's side and my argument is although we speak often about schools and you should and we should and we absolutely right unless we understand the the tensions that adults face we don't understand the homes in which children are being raised in and there are a lot of adults who feel, or at least from the experience I'm, uh, I've got or the conversation I'm having, who feel that the most important aspects of what it means to be a Jew uh, are not really being discussed in their community. They're afraid to discuss questions. They believe that if they have any queries or doubts, somehow it makes them uh, some, somewhat of a failing uh, as a Jew. Uh, they're supposed to just keep up with things, and even if they have religious struggles, not to raise any questions. But of course, they speak you know, freely within their home. And their children hear that. And then that raises families where people say, you know, you know, Moshe Feinstein said, unfortunately, the continued perpetuation of the remark, it's hard to be a Jew, led many Jews to kind of assimilate in America after immigrating. I'd say we're hearing within modern Orthodox Jews the words, it's hard to be a Jew. The sad fact is we have the wisdom to help us how to at least try and make sense of living as a Jew in the modern world, and we're not talking about it, we're not sharing it. And uh, it seems to be kind of like, this is, and if you are asking the question, then there's something wrong with you. Hmm. How can that be? Well, Rav Johnny, in that case, let's actually back up a little bit. Let's talk about before the question becomes acute, before the question is even raised. And you keep on mentioning, I think very accurately, how important the home is in addition to the schools. We can't rely on the schools to give so much. We have to do a lot in our own families. What would you advise a parent who were to consult with you who wants to raise his children in such a way that they're able to inculcate a sense of belief, a sense of trust in God? This is not a family that has any questions right now. They want to try and head it off at the past before it happens. That may or may not happen, but what would you recommend? How do you try to inculcate belief in children? I think a home is the place where that happens. I think, you know, synagogue is a mere expression of what's been fostered in a home and perhaps further strengthened in a school. I think, for example, brachot are expressions of faith. I don't think it, for goodness sakes. Brachot are expressions of faith. Uh, and, and so if brachot aren't expressed or featured in a Jewish home, then that's not just a missed opportunity. It's a misunderstanding of God's role in the food we eat, right? I think the prayer happens a lot more in a home than in a shul or in a school, which means that the shelf that should be best used, or most frequented in a home, should be the shelf of Sidurim. Uh, and, and that should be a, a given. The, the question isn't about how much people pray, that uh, uh, you know, a religious family should be praying. Uh, an understanding of you know, what is a mezuzah, an understanding of what is birkat mazon, 
an understanding of when we have a difficulty, you know, to how quickly are we there to invoke God? You know, when I, I'm, I, I've been midway, actually, it's almost finished writing my Sefon Shechiana for many years. But why Shechiana is such an interesting thing? When God forbid something bad happens, we're quick to say, Boch Daina Emes. When something good happens, most of us don't say Shechiana. We don't buy, we buy some clothes. And unfortunately, it is seen to be less the done thing to say Shechiana when you, when you go to the mall. So, which basically means we've blinded ourselves to God's presence when things go well. And we've only said it's God's fault when things go badly. Mm. That portrait of God is so unhealthy. It's so not representative of our tradition that that has an effect on each and every one of us. So brachot are important. Tefillot are important. Talking of God, just not just in the bad, but in the good, is important. And when you're watching the news with your kids and they say, what's going on? How you explain things is everything. Because a child is trying to make sense of the world and they need to understand not just what the newscast is saying, but give them a moral uh, framework in which to understand the events taking place. And that's a perfect opportunity to speak of faith, to speak about how this terrible thing is happening. We don't want to that things could be better. So uh, I think this is the bread and butter of how Jews should live. I'm not, I'm not in any which way an innovator. This should be so obvious that somehow we've forgotten it. And, and I don't understand how. We have large libraries of great Jewish books, but it, when it comes down to it, when we sit down at the table, families don't often say brachas. They certainly don't often say brachas amazing. Because, by the way, it's easy to say the bracha before you eat because you feel guilty. But afterwards, when you're done, it's like, thank you, God. You know, like the joke where somebody's trying to find a parking space and they pray to God, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And then they find the parking spot and say, don't worry, I found one. So we're, we're good at thanking God before, but not so much afterwards. We're good at lighting the Shabbos candles with Kavana. When it comes to Avdala, we're already checking our phones. There needs to be a sense of coherence as to the role of God in the home and elsewhere for that matter. And that's where it begins. And some people, by the way, don't know how to do that. And that's okay. And we need training. We need a coach. We need guidance as to how do we do that? So it doesn't always come naturally, but we should be prepared to ask that question. We should make sure that we have guides, educators who are confident enough to give answers. We're afraid sometimes to tell people what to do. I don't need to tell people what to do. I can tell you, though, that Jewish law says we say brachas before we eat and shouldn't be afraid to say that that's a, a primary way to foster emunah on a very basic level in a home. I think if I can just expand upon what you just said, Johnny, in a very similar way, along with making sure that the shelf, the sidurim, is the most used shelf in the home, I think it's important to tell people what tefillah really is. Not that we necessarily have all the answers about that either, but sometimes I fear that people look at tefillah as some sort of magic trick. If you say these particular words, then God has to do the following, where the Gemara says explicitly God doesn't have to do anything. That should be an obvious theological point, but I think people miss it, that tefillah's efficacy, or more specifically, whether it's a good tefillah or not, is not judged by whether God says yes or no to what you are asking for. We can say that even though we want God to answer our tefillah positively in such a way that what we're asking for, he gives us, we are dependent upon him, and tefillah is an expression of that dependence. At the same time, when he says no, or it doesn't seem to respond, that doesn't mean that tefillah was inherently a failure. Because if we only talk about the power of tefillah in the sense of God doing what I want, it kind of undermines, first of all, the sense of it being avodah, worship of God, a point 
point that was pointed out to me by Rabbi Micha Berger, but also it undermines our Amuna when he says no. If that's all the tefillah is, God's saying yes, and when he says no, it's not a good tefillah, or perhaps he's not really there, we're just actually undermining everything we're trying to accomplish. 100%. And in fact, on that, I'll, I'll briefly share you a story which so uh, stirs my heart each time I read it. One of the great heroes of, of, of Jewish prayer, Jewish thought, and Jewish scholarship in our time is Rachel Frankel. I had the privilege of spending a little bit of time with her last weekend in the Mizrahi conference. And uh, in a shir I give about Chizuk, I quote her uh, from 2015, of course. Apart from being a great scholar and a great, great person, she's also, unfortunately, a mother who lost a child uh, to terrorism. And it was recorded uh, how, this is in 2015, I had a, a, a clipping, a group of teenagers, peers of the kidnapped boys, were traveling the cartel for the safe return of Gilad, Eyal, and Naftali. And Racheli Frank, and Naftali's mother, was there praying along with them. And after Tefillah, she approached them and she said the memorable words, HaKadosh Baruch Hu isn't in our, our employee. Yes, we must daven. Yes, our prayers have the effect. But the creator of the world doesn't have to do what we say. Which, when you think about somebody who has that clarity of thought, under such distress is extraordinary it's why she's such a special person the problem is that we believe that god has to do what we say uh, and and that lack of humility a lack of understanding of, of where we are in the world leads us to not think significantly about god and and just to use a word there's a phrase that rabbi Sachs once said in a in a shiul he kind of just threw it out there which so resonated with me he said what if we took god seriously and, and, and I thought, you know, what if we did? And I actually, I take it further. What if we took Torah seriously? And when people ask me, some kind of, what kind of Jew are you? I say, I'm a Jew who tries to take Torah and God seriously. That doesn't mean I have <laughs> any answer, if you could call that term. But taking it seriously means I wrestle, means I, 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 I don't simply dismiss it and say it's stupid. I don't simply say it's irrelevant. I try and make sense of this timeless wisdom and try and make sense of this extraordinary relationship we have with our creator. Taking God seriously means that we don't always know why, but it also means we're not alone. And being able to figure out why things happen or try and make peace with them and live with the questions, that's what it means to be a person of faith. I, I like those words very much. I want to move on to the other aspect that I mentioned at the beginning, in modern orthodoxy, another problem I mentioned, we've been talking about lack of belief, but we also said that there might be an overemphasis on intellectualism. As you correctly pointed out, I think rationalism is the wrong word, perhaps intellectualism to the detriment of experience. I want to read you something that was quoted by Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, I believe also translated by him, something that Rav Soloveitchik said in an essay called Al-Ahavat HaTorah, the Geulat Nefesh Hador. So Rav Aaron quotes Rav Soloveitchik as saying the following, Therefore, I hereby announce that I am able to identify one of those responsible for the present situation, and that is I myself. I have not fulfilled my obligation as a Moreh Derech Behora'ah in Israel. I lacked the spiritual energies which a teacher and rabbi needs, or I lacked the necessary will, and did not dedicate everything I had to my goal. While I have succeeded, to a great or small degree, as a teacher and guide in the area of Gadlut HaMochin, my students have received much Torah from me, and their intellectual stature has been strengthened and increased during the years they have spent around me. I have not seen much success in my efforts in the experiential area. I was not able to live together with them, to cleave to them, to transfer to them from the warmth of my soul. My words, it seems, have not kindled the Shalhevet Ka in sensitive hearts. I have sinned as a Marbitz Torah Shabalev, which has been given over in a fashion which has been Mima'et Hatzmut lessening the image to the point of katnut hamochin. My error lies with me. 
It's a very, very honest self-appraisal by Rav Soloveitchik, accurate or not. I, I quoted it recently, yes, and I know the quote well. That seems to be a real problem on the other side, that people in modern orthodoxy too often seem to want more, something more than the intellectualism, which is often transmitted. They want something more experiential. How would you say we should give them that? I want to talk about both rationalism, although we, I, I was clear that there's a difference between intellectualism and rationalism. I want to talk about that and then, and then speak about that yearning for for the emotional and experiential, because I also hear that too within our communities. In fact, basically some people feel that they have to almost give up on their true selves to fit the mold of modern orthodoxy. Uh, and that, which is tragic by the way, mm -hmm. as if to say, let's, you can be modern orthodox, but let's not overdo it, man. So um, uh, interestingly, I, uh, for some years I gave a course on the role. In fact, I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about my background. Uh, my mother Ashkenazi, my father's Fardi. And, and though I grew up in Ashkenazi Shul, and, and, uh, and that's very much my learning roots, I went to Kerem as well, uh, there's a certain awareness and respect for, and, and perhaps consideration of the mystical, which I'd say has been at times overlooked in certain modern Orthodox communities. Over the years, I gave a course on the role of Kabbalah in Halakha. And the short answer is, it's compelling that there is some role of Kabbalah in Halakha. To what extent you want to emphasize that, it's up to you. And there's an interesting book, a wonderful book, actually, by a, a good friend of mine called Rabbi Dr. Michael Harris called uh, Faith Without Fear, where he talks about unresolved issues in modern orthodoxy, with one chapter being Jewish mysticism, meaning we haven't really figured out within modern orthodox how we deal with Jewish mysticism, which uh, is curious because one needs to acknowledge that there is a role of the beyond in a faith. And I'm going to quote you just a, a few lines, if, if I may. He says, is there any place for mysticism in modern Orthodox worldview? He says, I've tried to argue three things. Firstly, the mysticism as an ingredient of halakha is also to an extent invariably part of modern Orthodox life. Secondly, there are ways in which the central tradition of Jewish mysticism, the Kabbalah, might enhance and even help to ground modern Orthodoxy. But thirdly, that some aspects of Jewish mystical tradition are deeply problematic for modern Orthodoxy. So what that means basically is, and he's right, it's an unresolved issue. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are areas which uh, modern Orthodox Jews are, should be drawn to, but often aren't. There are areas which they are repelled by and, and they often overemphasize. The issue is that people, especially when it comes down to prayer and religious experience, have different yearnings. Very, very recently, the Yish University had an Orthodox forum on neo-Hasidism. There was a book that's just recently published, hasn't yet arrived in Israel. I'm waiting for it, and if, unless you've got a copy. I, I contacted Pomerantz and they said it's still on a boat somewhere. But what's interesting is in the discussions around this forum, which took place already a couple of years ago, it was quite clear that there are many in the Yeshiva University world who were yearning for something different. I, I mean, neo-Hasidism is one expression of something different. I don't think it's the only one. But nevertheless, there are some people who are very, very dismissive about this yearning and saying, basically, this is an unnecessary addition to what should be a very satisfying lifestyle. And I think that is unwise. I think, uh, unfortunately, we've narrowed how what it means to express oneself as a Jew, especially within the modern Orthodox community, such that we don't want to look too Hasidic, we don't want to look too Haredi, we don't want to appear too much like this or sound too much like that, that for some people, I only stress for some people, there's a certain blandness, there's a certain lack of spirit, certainly a lack of spirituality. In fact, in a talk I gave, quoting actually an essay from 1954, so it's not quite relevant to our period, but I do think it speaks to us today. I quote Rabbi Dr. Isidore Epstein, who talked about how 
the community was suffering a certain sense of spiritual anemia. And I, that phrase very much spoke to me even uh, till today. So I think a lot of people are feeling a lacking and they're trying to supplement it with other things. For some people, it's within the tradition, within modern orthodoxy, and that's great. And they're taking the wisdom of our teachers seriously. And for me, that's what I draw from the teachings of, of Rabbi Sachs and others. For other people, they're looking towards other uh, complementary aspects of of Judaism, you know, they'll, they'll uh, incorporate certain rituals, perhaps from Chabad or from other Hasidic uh, movements, because they feel it lifts them. For others, they'll turn to mindfulness and perhaps other movements, which, though very much not uh, misaligned with Judaism, may not necessarily be fully aligned uh, with Jewish teachings. And they'll say, I want to use this to try, try and uplift my soul. But the very fact that there is this hunger, there is this, what I, I'm using this term, spiritual anemia, basically, our Nutritional content coming from some of our communities and our schools seems to be lacking. And if that's the case in terms of our physical body, we generally take supplements. So other people are looking for supplements. And it's a job of religious leaders, a uh, job of religious communities to say, if a lot of people need supplements, maybe there's something that we're not quite doing right. And I feel that that's what's happening in many modern Orthodox communities. People are looking for something else to make them feel spiritually whole which means that either we've not done justice to the rich tradition of ours, which includes not just the mind, but also the heart, or there are things which our new uh, period of history, every kufa, every chapter in Jewish history has its own challenges. And maybe the solutions of the last generation aren't enough for the challenges of the current generation. And our job is to step up and say, how can we help? But if we don't talk about Emunah, we don't talk about Jewish philosophy. If we would rather say, as Rav Soloveitchik says, that we've prayed rather than deal with the challenge of prayer, if all those things which touch on the soul are basically not the top of our priorities, no wonder people are feeling hollow and they're feeling undernourished. And some of them basically are saying, if it's not doing it for me with the challenges I face as a Jew in the modern world, maybe I need to look elsewhere or maybe this isn't just right for me. And I think that this is indicated in what you're saying right now. And for example, new experiences like the prevalence of Karl Bachmin Nanim, which 30 years ago we almost never heard about now. They're extraordinarily common. Right on my own block over here, very, very close, the Karl Bachmin on Friday night is bursting at the seams with kids who want something. Now, that said, I sometimes think that Karl Bachmin Yanim and that sort of experiential davening is sort of an attempt to try to get close to a type of experience, but ultimately it's not really catching it. It's just, okay, it's a nice singing davening. That's wonderful. But I wonder if we should try to create, and obviously easier said than done, an indigenous, inherently modern Orthodox response to these challenges rather than try to grab them from here. Oh, the Hasidic movement has something, so let me move over there. Wonderful. That's great. But maybe something needs to be built from within rather than looking from without. It would be nice if that would happen. I don't know how it would, though. I believe, and, and really this is my argument, I believe that there's so much rich uh, emotionally rich wisdom that has been taught by our great teachers. And, that, and by the way, uh, not just because I identify as modern Orthodox doesn't mean the only teachers whose Torah I learn are modern Orthodox. That would be absurd. But what I do believe is that there is so much wonderful wisdom out there. And what we seem to be doing is ignoring it because somehow we feel it's a say it's taboo. If there was a real conversation to be had in modern Orthodox communities about how we grapple with, with, with belief, right? And, uh, and different voices are brought, but said, we're not even having the conversation. And that's the whole point. 
It's not like we're serving something and they're serving something, but they're serving something tastier. We're not serving anything. And people are saying, oh, you know, I might as well go to that uh, petition. Why do you know, people go to Fabring? And why? Because <laughs> in the modern North at Shul, they, sh- they closed Shul early. Everyone went home and had a shluf. Well, if that's going to be the case, everyone's going to go to Fabring and, and Beseda and they should enjoy it. But there are people who want to sit down and sing. There are people who want to sit down and discuss things. There are people who have challenges of the heart and mind, and there is a lack of subtlety in, in some of the responses we give, especially to issues in the pre- modern world, which is the most ridiculous thing, meaning the very mantra of modern orthodoxy isn't necessarily being fulfilled by modern orthodoxy. And the debates happening in a wider world and yet we're afraid to engage with them. And when we do, we do so with a lack of confidence. And as I say, one of my great teachers, Rabbi Sachs, when people think Rabbi Sachs is so good, he wrote all those books. Let me tell you, writing books is impressive, but he wasn't just doing that. He was on, you know, secular news television talking about issues of our age. He was being an ambassador of Judaism and in so doing, teaching not just us, but the wider world, how our teachings, how the Torah, how the traditions which he represented in the wider world can speak to the challenges of the wider world. And unless we attempt to do that, all we've done is basically go back to our own kind of stabilization, but rather than it just be that of Yiddish speaking, it's sometimes modern Orthodox and most modern Orthodox Jews themselves speak really to themselves. And and, and I think that too is ridiculous, but I'm, I'm veering off course. Suffice to say, yes, we could create things. But I also think we have things. I think we've ignored things. You quoted before of Ravaron Lichtenstein. You know, maybe that essay should be required reading. People can quote uh, great literature. We have great literature from the modern Orthodox mind, ones which speak about those tensions. Why, why are we not encouraging people to reflect on those and ponder those? Maybe there's a handful of schools with a Jewish philosophy class uh, which helps them. But there are gifts to the world that we need to be uh, reflecting on. And that's why, by the way, just to give a plug, one quite self to myself, say to myself, you know, I put together a kind of a, a collection of 1600 quotes of, uh, of Rabbi Sachs from all these books and ordered by subject. And I I'm kind of shared it to, to his office and then conveyed it on my website for, to download. But why? Because his wisdom is so beautiful. It's so profound. It's right there. So we have a, if you have a question about how to deal with certain issues. Let's look to our teachers. You know, some are hard to navigate. So him, I've tried to make it slightly less hard to navigate. Let's turn to our teachers and let's meditate on their words so that when something happens, we can be equally quick to quote, you know, Rabbi Lichtenstein or Rabbi Sachs as, as somebody who belongs to the Chabad movement will quote the Rebbe. By the way, I think we should be quoting the Rebbe and they should also be quoting Rabbi. But the point is, we're not good at holding onto and sharing and teaching the wisdom that's come from within this community to speak about the challenges that we face as people who are both orthodox and who are modern. And it's interesting, I, I often teach at different places and speak with different people. If you go to Chabad Yeshiva or Umidrasha, then there's a certain kind of collection of wisdom of the Rebbe you're expected to know. And that's wonderful, that's brilliant. And in Bresla, there's a certain collection of wisdom how come we haven't done that for modern orthodoxy? We could say, read the lonely man of faith, Bethsaida, but come on, we can do more than that. And first and foremost, that, <laughs> that, that you know, not everybody has the ability to necessarily tear apart 
that complex text to necessarily apply in every situation. We need to give people the wisdom that's going to speak to them, which I think can be found from the ideological community, which I proudly belong. Well, in that case, Ravjani, based on what you said, perhaps a misunderstanding, it sounds like you think the problem is more acute in the modern Orthodox community than in the more right-wing Orthodox communities, both the problem of social orthodoxy and the problem of experiential or lack thereof orthodoxy. Why is it such a problem? I know you're not a sociologist, but why do you think it's such a problem in modern orthodoxy per se? Why is it more of a problem in this world than elsewhere? And does that say something bad about our own community or perhaps something which undermines the philosophy of modern orthodoxy? So the short answer is I haven't a clue, meaning I, I daven amongst Hasidim, I, I know my doctors in, in a more Haredi part of town, uh, I read all sorts of different Sfarim. But what I do find is oftentimes modern Orthodox uh, Jews seem to be consider themselves qualified to speak about trends in communities to which they don't belong and don't speak enough about trends to which the community they do belong. So I, I could give you an estimated guess about uh, other communities to which I, I richly have many, many interactions, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to say which one is better or worse. It's not my job. It's not my challenge. My, my, my job to be somebody who is thoughtful is to say, I live in this community. I meet with people. People are telling me things which are not sharing with others because there's no meaningful conversation taking place. So if I were to say they've got it worse than we do, what, what's the difference? In both of us, you know, like, that person's got a worse sickness than we do. But, you know, that's, that's not how we should be playing, living our Judaism. So uh, let's stay out, stay, keep to our lane. And I'd say, why is it that we're doing what we're doing? Part and parcel of it is because of how we've structured our communities how we've been much more reluctant to, to be vulnerable with our communities. Part of it is to do with appearance. Part of it is to do with literature. Part of it is to do with our narrowing of the role of the religious guide as being much more purely halachic. Part of it is because we want the elect, intellectual and the rational, uh, and, and we want to impress people that we are successful in that area. Part of it is because we don't want to share with other people that we have questions, we have doubts. Whatever the case, I think what I'm hearing from people, and by the way, I didn't just give a variety of talks, I haven't just spoken to many people, but I've been doing a series of surveys where people have given me privately feedback, and, and they're basically saying, Johnny, you're just like at the top of the iceberg. There's, there's so many people who feel really frustrated in their communities, really unmoved, really you know, tired of doing the same old thing, but what do they do? Basically, it's, you know, it's like a famous uh, remark David Halibni wrote in his letter to JTS, which I think was previously borrowed from somebody else, which is the people I talk with, I can't pray with, the people I pray with, I can't talk with. So a lot of people uh, feel they have to make a choice here. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think we need to. I think we need to grow up as a community, have more confidence in who we are, be more real and raw about the issues we face. Because, you know, faking it until you make it is a bit absurd. You know, try, trying to have the big smile, but know that things are difficult on the inside doesn't help anybody. So uh, I think that's kind of how we we do. We, we you know, it's interesting when we do videos of institutions within modern orthodoxy, be it schools, yeshiva, university, whatever. We always tell people how wonderful things are, and there's something uh, I'd say both understandable about that because that's marketing. But sometimes we're so interested in marketing ourselves, we're not being honest with ourselves. I'm just trying to say. I, I, I strongly believe in so much that we speak of, but let's also be honest about the challenges. That helps us be real. 
Then, Rev. Johnny, that leads me to my final question. And this is a very big question. It might have a very simple answer. And you've already sort of answered it. But I'd like to ask you, does modern orthodoxy have a future? Because I know a lot of people say, no, it doesn't. Either people are going to become not orthodox at all, or they're going to move to the right. And modern orthodoxy as an institution per se really doesn't have much of a future. I'm taking it that you disagree with that, but let me ask you directly. What do you think? Firstly, I don't speak for any institution. By the way, it's interesting. Those who do aren't saying the things I'm saying. And that's, that's something almost tragic. People who are so institutionally invested oftentimes find they can't say what they want to say, which is why this role as a virtual rabbi, when I go to communities, rabbis of communities say, Baruch Hashem, now you can say the things I've always wanted to say, but I can't. I say, well, why are you not saying the things you want to say? They say, because people are going to hear what I say. I say, that's the point. But uh, not being a mouthpiece of any single institution often helps because you can uh, see things slightly broader. Do I think modern orthodoxy has a future? Of course, the answer is, of course. If you were talking about in terms of numbers, well, actually, let's be clear. If we want to talk about demographics, what are the family sizes within modern orthodoxy? Meaning, that's a, that's a scientific question to which we can give an answer. The family sizes of modern orthodox families are reducing. So is, is there a future, an ideological community? Yes. Is it going to get smaller over time? Probably. What, what is that going to do in terms of the future of modern orthodoxy, well, it means that if they're not saying much now, they're going to say less in the future. What, and, and if there's less money coming in now that we need to do these regular fundraisers for every modern orthodox institution, then we're going to have to do them more or some of those institutions are going to need to close. I, I, I strongly believe in the wisdom that we've received from our great teachers. And by the way, I've mentioned a bunch of them. There are many, many others. And, you know, Heli Frankel, Erica Brown, who I'm a huge fan of. There, there is so much uh, we can learn from these fine scholars and these fine leaders. Yes, there is a future for modern orthodoxy, but I think most modern orthodox Jews don't quite know what it means to be modern orthodox. You mentioned Jay Lefkowitz's article. There are a lot of people who basically just living the humdrum of what may well be uh, you know, a lower common denominator in terms of practice. That's not what modern orthodoxy speaks of. And we need to foster leaders, train teachers to be more confident about their message. It's not about being opposed to anything, but it's about saying, this is what we believe and we're proud of it. And until we do that, and I don't think we're doing it well enough, um, then people, even if they live within this community, are never going to quite understand it. And the problem is, if you live in a community, you don't understand why you do and what it represents, it leads to confusion. I'm meeting those confused people. And it's not about whether they leave modern orthodox, it's whether they leave Judaism at all, because what they were brought up to think can provide uh, clarity for their challenges isn't doing that in a time of greatest need. So I, I want modern orthodoxy to succeed. If, if there's any kind of measure for that, um, I want us to be prepared to talk about the things that we don't talk about, which includes family, for example, because, as mentioned, that's a pretty important feature in terms of growth of a community. Uh, but beyond that, I want us to share the wisdom of our community and rather than spend so much time def defining who we are, say it doesn't matter how you define it. This is our wisdom. That's been part and parcel of the Achilles heel, I'd say, of modern orthodoxy. Spent way too long thinking about who are we in some kind of important definitional dictionary? And instead, we've not done enough in terms of sharing that wisdom so that people say, when an event happens, I understand how to respond to that. And thank you for the wisdom that I've received from my teachers, which helps me navigate how to be an orthodox modern Jew.
And with that, Rav Johnny, how do people reach out to you if they want to talk to you in your role as the virtual rabbi? Firstly, you can reach out to me any which way. I, I write something every day on Dafyomi, write different different Torah. Reach out to me because you want to reach out to me. If you have some thoughts, feel free. Beyond that, if, if you want to book a session, you can go to my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, and you can uh, choose options from there. And the beauty is it's a system which is, or you know, self-explanatory it's seamless it's frictionless you go there you book a session and then i get a message you know the one of the reasons by the way that people aren't talking with religious leaders is in order to have a conversation with a busy rabbi of a community you have to you, you may well call them or text them and they'll get back to you a little bit later on and you figure out a time to find a few minutes for, for them to be able to talk with you and you feel guilty for taking their time that's ridiculous by the time you're able, able to meet, the issue has been resolved or not resolved, and you feel bad enough for taking their time. So my system is completely different because I don't, uh, you know, I, I work with a, a virtual community. You go there, you book a time, uh, you tell me what you want to talk about. I prepare material for us to discuss. There is a fee because the time is taken both for that preparation and for the conversation. But nevertheless, then we have a, a deep dive of things that matter. And, and so we've got a bunch of testimonials to see that to say that people appreciate what I'm doing. Rabbi Johnny Solomon, this has been very interesting, very important, a lot of food for thought, and I thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.